Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4, where we are again going to look at another one of Jesus' temptations and just uh, learn some important things that we all need to learn. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of Jesus' teaching, if any man that will serve me, let him follow me, said, Jesus now comes from Jordan. And the spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And you too must be tempted. Do not think when you are tempted that therefore you are not Christ's. No, if you would be his servant, you must follow him. You must be tempted too. You must be assailed in many points. The arrows must fly from above and from beneath. You must be tried on all hands and in all ways. Run not from conflict. For if any man would serve Christ, he must follow him through the hottest temptations as well as through the brightest joys, end quote. And that certainly is true. Just as Jesus was tempted, so we need to be tempted too, and we are. The question is, how are you dealing with it? The Bible says that through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And many of those trials are with temptation. And yes... You and I will have to deal with temptation until we die. We'll we'll never be to the place where we're just kind of beyond temptation and have grown past that. But the battlefield is strewn with the fallen corpses and wounded souls of many who profess to know Christ. And by God's grace, we have a good medic, the physician of our souls, Jesus Christ. And he comes to us even when we're hurting, even when we failed, and he gets us patched up and gets us functioning again so we can march after him. From the very beginning, when we were dead in our sins, he cleansed us, he healed us. And if we are willing, he will train us to be good soldiers. But some people just never get there. Many still walk right into the firefight and always seem to be fallen. They always seem to need treatment. They always seem to be a casualty. They never really learn how to fight the good fight without succumbing to temptation. And this is not good. And that is why we're taking some time here and slowing down. And Jesus is teaching us by example how to deal with temptation in our lives. In previous weeks, we learned... That there are certain things that make us vulnerable to temptation and we need to avoid those things. We've also seen many ways that we're tempted. And when we're tempted, we need to uh, take God's means, which is primarily his word, in order to combat temptation. And this is what we've learned so far. We've learned that Jesus being isolated, being continually exposed to temptation, being all alone in the wilderness with nothing to meditate on. But God was exposed to very extreme temptation. And Satan, with all of his malice, with all of his hate, with all of his desire to see Jesus fall and with him all of humankind. Satan was not just attacking Jesus. He was attacking you and me. If Jesus would have sinned, you and I would perish. And he knew that. He knew that. We learned that the temptations we have recorded for us in the Gospels happened after Jesus had completed his 40 days of fasting. This is significant 
Because we must not misunderstand the text and think that it was the father's will not to eat. It was during the 40 days, but now that time is over. The fast was over and it was now acceptable in the father's eyes for Jesus to eat. And that is when Satan comes along and says, hey, bud, listen, if you are the son of God, why don't you help yourself out here? Turn this stone to a loaf of bread and it almost seems like Satan is being nice, benevolent. You know, I know you're on the verge of starving to death and having not eaten for 40 days. Why don't you just use some of your power, show that you're the son of God and have a nice meal. And Jesus had the right to eat. He had the freedom to eat. He had permission to eat and eating isn't sin in most contexts. But in some contexts, it would be sin to eat bread And in Jesus' case, it was not the Father's will that he used his divine powers to meet his physical needs. And at first glance, one might come away and conclude that the short and long of Satan's temptation was merely an appeal to turn a stone into a loaf of bread. And what's the big deal about that? But there was something much bigger behind it. First, Satan tried to get Jesus to doubt that he was the son of God. Jesus had already heard a voice from heaven. You are my son. And Satan comes along saying, if you are the son of God. Secondly, Satan tried to get Jesus to prove that the word of God was true by doing a miracle. And this implied several other things. First, it implied that Jesus was answerable to Satan, which he's not. Secondly, implied that the word of God should not be implicitly trusted because it might not be right, which is wrong. And third, that Jesus needed to prove that God's word was true and to do it by a means that's of Satan's choosing, which also is false. And all of these things were packaged into what appears at the first glance to be a very simple temptation, but really was an attempt to wipe out all of the elect since Adam. To undo the Godhead. To destroy God's entire plan of redemption. To make the word of God to be false. It would have proven that Jesus was not the son of God. He was not the Messiah. He was not the Holy One. It would have proven that he was a sinner and God the Father was a liar because God promised he was the Holy One. He would save everybody. He would come and do these things and never sin. But he would have sinned and it would have undone all of this. And so the whole temptation was like a big block of foam covered with icing to look like a cake. And the big lesson we learned... Last week was this, that Satan will often tempt you to sin in an area where you have rights, where you have permission, but he will tempt you to do it just outside of the will of God. Just a little bit. We also learned how Jesus dealt with temptation. He quoted the word of God, the word of God, which he most likely learned when he was young and in Awana. I don't know what the Jews version was back then, but surely we know from what we've studied, even in previous chapters, that when he was 12, he knew the scriptures so well. And it wasn't because he was God. 
It was because he studied hard. He wasn't relying on his omniscience. It was because from a very early age, he was taught the word of God and he knew it so well that he marveled the rabbis when he was 12. And so he used the word of God that he knew and was trained in from his youth to deal with the temptation. And young people, when your parents encourage you to read your Bible and to memorize scripture, and to go to camp and go to youth group and be involved in a discipleship group or whatever. Don't roll your eyes and do the air brakes thing. They're trying to save your life. They're trying to save your soul. Because from this moment until the day you die, you will be tempted. It never ends. Jesus, when tempted, quoted the scriptures and then chose to place his faith in the word of God. And if you don't have the word of God, you can't recall it to mind. If you don't understand the scriptures, you don't know how to apply the scriptures. The time will come sooner or later when you will be away from your mother and father and you will be in your own wilderness. Maybe it will be in a class. Maybe it will be when taking a test. Maybe it will be after school talking to some friends. Maybe it will be when you are away to college with some friends. And then temptation will come there. You will be in your own wilderness all alone and you will be vulnerable to temptation and it will come. And there the three of you will be God, you and Satan. And most likely Satan will be using unbelievers who are his pawns through whom he works to tempt you to sin. And you will do one of two things. First, you will either instantly become a practical atheist, a God hater, and choose to put out of your mind what you know is true about God and his word. You will then dethrone God and put yourself on the throne. You will become your own God. You will let your own desires, your own law, your own will govern your life. You will submit to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. You will be like an ox to the slaughter or a deer to the trap or a bird to the snare. And you will stuff your face or your mind or whatever with whatever pleasure is being offered you. And then soon you will feel the hook in your throat and the spear in your conscience. And you will begin to pay for that temporary pleasure. You will do that or you will bring to remembrance what you know is true from the word of God. You will remind yourself what is true. You will not let yourself believe a lie. You remember who is your Lord and who is your master, that you have been bought with your price, that you are no longer your own, that you are a slave to the one who purchased you with his own blood. You will cry out to God for help and strength to endure the temptation. You will look for a way of escape because you know there is a way of escape because God said he will always give you a way of escape and you will take it. And afterwards... There will be no hook in your throat or spear of guilt stabbing at the conscience of your mind. And you will sleep that night with a clean conscience and a pure heart and joy knowing that you have served your creator. And that is how it is every day for all of us. So now we come again to the second temptation leveled against Jesus by Satan. And after this 
time of fasting, after he was tempted with turning a stone into a loaf of bread, the second thing Satan tempts Jesus with is the kingdoms of the world. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Luke chapter 4. And he that is Satan... Let him, that is Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain in its glory, for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Now, Satan knows that the kingdoms of the world are valuable. He knows the kingdoms of the world have great glory that it means something to own them. And so he shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and says, look at those. Aren't those incredible? Look at their glory. Look at their splendor. Look at their buildings. Look at their riches. You see, the first temptation he leveled at Jesus was the lust of the flesh, wasn't it? Jesus was hungry and he said, here, why don't you now fulfill your desires? Your hunger. Now he is appealing to the lust of the eyes. Look at all these kingdoms. Look how wonderful they are. He's failed to tempt Jesus in the area of the flesh. And so now he tries the lust of the eyes. He wants Jesus to look at the kingdoms of the world and their glory and say, you know what? I want them. You're right. I want them and I want them now. And if you want, I went on a drive in a nice, you know, upper class neighborhood somewhere. And I drove you around and said, look at these houses. You know, if you could have any house you wanted, which one would it be? And we drove and, oh, I look at that one. Oh, look at, oh, look at that one. Oh, that's incredible. And all of a sudden you see one, it just takes your breath away and think, oh, oh, look at that. This huge mansion is, oh, it's just incredible. And I say to you, it's yours. You can have it. What would be the first thing that would come to your mind? Sure. You don't own that house. That house isn't yours. You can't give me that house. You can't give me something that isn't yours. You wouldn't even get excited about it. You'd probably be a little bit more depressed, wishing it was true. But I don't know about you, but when I read this text, what comes to my mind is this. Does Satan actually possess all the kingdoms of the world? Can he actually give them away to whomever he wishes? And, you know, Jesus doesn't say, hey, 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 wait a minute here. The kingdoms of the world are not yours. They're mine. He doesn't say that. What Satan said was true to a certain degree. And let me just ask you a few questions. When Jesus in John 12, 31 and 14, 30 and 16, 11 speaks of the ruler of this world, who is he speaking of? Satan. And when Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 speaks of the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, who is he speaking of? Satan. When Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, speaks of the ruler or the prince of the power of the air who is now working in the sons of disobedience, who is he speaking of? Satan. And when John in 1 John 5, verse 19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, who is he speaking of? Satan. Satan is the king, the ruler, the prince, the God of 
the very world that you and I live in every day. He's king. He's king. But what comes to people's mind is how? How did this happen? Who, who Did God give him these? Where did he get them from? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 1, way back at the very beginning, where we can find the answer to this question. How did Satan end up with all the kingdoms of the world? Was it a legitimate offer that he was giving to Jesus? Or was it like me telling you, here, you can have that mansion that I don't even know who lives there? In Genesis chapter 1, 26, remember that when God created Adam, he created him as the representative head of all mankind, the ruler of the world. Adam, just like God, was to be a ruler. Just as God rules heaven and earth, so Adam was to be king of the world under God. Look at verse 26 and what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. God just didn't create men. He created men in his image. And part of his image is a image or function of being a ruler, a ruler. And what was he to rule over? Well, birds and fish and animals and every creeping thing over all the earth, even bugs. The king of bugs. If you look down in verse 28, after God creates the man and the woman, He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. They were to be the gods, the rulers of the world. The God of the universe would give them instructions. They then would rule under the dominion of God Almighty and they would rule over everything. And God only gave him one rule. And that rule was don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then Satan successfully tempted Eve, didn't he? Satan came on the scene and deceived Eve into setting aside God as her king. Setting aside his law. Setting aside his will for her. And so what he did is, is she submitted herself instead to Satan and his will over her life. And then what happened? And then she, having fallen into sin, having submitted herself to Satan's lordship, then was used by Satan to undo Adam. And then Adam had a choice and Adam made the wrong one. He too set aside God as his Lord and he too bowed the knee to the temptation and he submitted himself to Satan's will and rule over his life. And he too ate the forbidden fruit. And in that moment, God said, okay, Adam and Eve, I made you ruler 
over all the earth. But now, because you have submitted yourself to Satan and his lordship, now you will be under him. Oh, you're still rule, but you will be under him. The whole world will now lie in his power. And so when Satan says it has been handed over to me, that's when it happened. That's when it happened. Satan is now the God of this world, the prince of this world, the ruler of this world. And all the unbelieving masses of humanity are held captive by him to do his will. This is the true part. But what is missing is the reality that even though Satan is the ruler of this world, God is still over him and he is still accountable to God. Satan himself is under authority. And whom do you suppose is over Satan, but God himself working out his master plan for the world, even though Satan is ruling under him. And we see this in all sorts of texts, don't we? For instance, in Isaiah 40, God speaks of sitting above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And it says he raises one king up and one kingdom up and he takes another down and he just blows on these rulers and they're gone. They're like stubble, takes them out. No problem. He can do it. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the very painful and hard lesson that the Lord is ruler over all mankind and he bestows authority and sovereignty on whomever he wishes. God is the king of kings. And that's who Jesus is. He builds up one, he tears down another. And so what's interesting is that the temporary ruler of this world, Satan, appeals to the true and ultimate ruler of the world, Christ. And in Luke 5 or 4 verse 5, look there, Satan led Jesus up and showed him all the kings of the world in a moment. Now, if you're wondering this, you're wondering, now, how did he do that? I don't know. It's fascinating to think about, isn't it? Did he grab onto him and kind of, you know, take him around like lightning or how did that work? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. And so we can't really say. Apparently, he has the power to move rather quickly. Uh, It does say that he showed him all the kings of the world. But the word all doesn't always mean all every each. But sometimes it means all a large group of uh, a great sum of something. And this is probably what it means here. He probably whisked him around to some of the great kingdoms of the world and showed him these incredible kingdoms. Look at that. Look at the pyramids. Would you like to own those pyramids? They'd be yours. You could have them. Look at this great palace you can have that too great this great it's yours and he says you can have it all and shows him all the kings of the world and then we read in verse six and the devil said to him i will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me and i give it to whoever i want now let's just think about this for a moment since jesus is the son of god and he created the heavens and earth like colossians says for by him all things were created Doesn't he have the right to possess what he created? Well, yes. And since Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Prince of Peace and King of Kings and Lord of Lords, doesn't he have the right to rule all the kingdoms of the world? Well, of course. And since he is the son of God, does he not have the right to receive all glory and honor and praise from all the kings of the world? Yes. 
And isn't it true that the Bible says that Jesus will come again and he will rule all the kings of the world? Yes. So what's the big deal? Again, it almost seems like Satan is helping him out. Yeah, we know this is true. You're the Messiah. You're the ruler of the world, the prince, the king of kings. Okay, well, here's the kingdoms that uh, God's word promises that you need to rule. So take them. Take them. And can you see the subtleness here? Again, Satan knows all these things are true. He knows Jesus is God. He knows he is the future ruler and rightful heir of all the kings of the world. And one day he will rule them. All of this is good. All of this is right. All of this is the will of God. It has all been prophesied and God's word cannot be broken. But there's a problem here. And that's the first lesson we learn from this temptation. You must not only submit to what God says. You can have, but you must also submit to it at the time God says you can have it. Jesus was tempted to have possessions that were rightfully his before the time that was rightfully his. You know, you may have a great deal of money in the bank and you have the right to pull that great sum of money out anytime you want. Wrong. Can you go to the bank at midnight, get some plastic explosives out, make your own entrance into the vault and get your money? No. You see, you have to submit to banking hours to get your money out. You can't have it anytime you want. You can have it sometimes you want. You have the right to drive your car across town. That's not a big deal. Weave through all the intersections. But listen, when the light turns red, you have to stop. You don't just get to go anytime you want. You have to submit to the lights. Well, Satan's temptation was very subtle because he offers to give Jesus what is rightfully his in the first place, but to do it just outside of God's timing. And you know what? He will remind you of the same thing. Listen, God says you can have whatever it is. You know, it's not a sin. You know, this was created by God to enjoy. So have it now. Problem is, is now is when God says you can have it. And imagine the consequences of Jesus saying, okay, give them to me. What what would have happened? Well, it only would have meant that Jesus bypassed the cross. Bypassed atoning for our sins, bypassed dying as the Lamb of God, bypassed the resurrection. We would all be damned. Jesus would be a sinner. The Trinity would be undone. The word of God would be false. That's all. Satan's proposal is better the kingdoms of the world in hand than the hope of them in the bush of the future. And he wants Jesus to think of himself and his rule and what he would like and what would pleasure him. But he doesn't want Jesus to think about you and me. See, think about yourself and what you want now. And isn't this what Satan did with Peter? You remember what happened? Jesus says, man, Matthew 16, man, I just want you to know I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem. And uh, the leaders, the Jewish leaders are... They're going to kill me. 
and I'm going to go into the grave and three days though, I'm going to rise up. And what did Peter say? An incredible plan of God. Is that what he said? No, no. He said, God forbid it, Lord. God forbid it. This shall never happen to you. Oh, really? And how did Jesus reply? Get behind me, Simon. Get behind me, Cephas. Get behind me, Peter. Get behind me, Satan, is what he said. Why? Because at that very moment, Peter was working for Satan. He was the mouthpiece of Satan. Peter was so concerned about what he wanted. Was Peter concerned about all the elect from the time of Noah to the end of the age? Huh, hardly. Was Peter thinking about God's will and what God might want? No. Was Peter thinking about the necessity of the resurrection and why Jesus not only had to die, but rise again on the third day? No. Was Peter thinking about somebody close to him? Yes, himself. He was really concerned about what he wanted. He liked Jesus. He didn't want to be without Jesus. He wanted to stay with Jesus. He had the desire for Jesus to do his will. And Satan was behind it all. And so Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Ow, 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 ow. That would have hurt. I mean, here you are. You think, you know, you're the leader of the apostles. And all of a sudden Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Mm. You see, Satan will be quick to remind you, oh, oh, you know how to drive. You've passed your driver's test. Your driver's license is coming in a week. Your dad says you're a good driver. You've never been in an accident. You be careful. Just take the car for a spin. You know, a week early. Mom made those cookies to eat. I mean, you know, she's not going to eat all those cookies. There's milk in the refrigerator and you know, she buys it so you can drink it. Why not have some? Well, because mom said you can't have any until after dinner. That's why the cookies are good. The milk's fine. You can eat them. Yes, they're for you. Yes, but not now. We need to make sure we aren't like Saul, who was so anxious to go to war with God's blessing that he sinned in order to get it. He offered up a sacrifice, which was not permissible. And this leads us to the second lesson you need to learn from this temptation. And that is this. You must refrain from obtaining what is acceptable by unacceptable means. Not only was Jesus tempted to receive the kingdoms of the world before God's perfect timing, but to acquire them by unlawful means. Look at verse seven. Satan wanted Jesus to pay a little homage in closing costs. Oh, therefore, if you worship before me, it that it's all the kingdoms of the world shall be yours. And the word worship means to lie down or prostrate uh, to to lie down uh, in homage, in submission to another person's authority over you. In recognition of their will over yours. 
You see, there's always a price that Satan wants you to pay for sin. And he wants to encourage you, you know, you could pay this price. It's not that big a deal. It won't hurt you that bad. And he always amplifies, amplifies the benefits and he downplays or never even mentions the consequences. He leads you down a path, but doesn't tell you it's a dead end. He always gives you the bait, but he forgets to tell you about the hook. He gives you the grenade, but he keeps the pin. He wants to sell you some acreage. It's a really good deal. Imagine what you could build on this much acreage. But by the way, it's toxic swampland that he forgot to tell you that part. And Satan wanted Jesus to pay for all the kings of the world with a little satanic worship, a little idolatry. And Satan will tempt you to do just the same thing. I'm sure he has already. The Bible says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And he'll come to you and tell you the exact opposite. Seek the world, seek money, seek riches, seek position, seek fame. And then if you have some time left over, you can minister to God. I've had people come to me with multi-level marketing schemes trying to convince me that, you know, if you really work this business and just stayed out of the ministry for a time and really, uh, you know, got got uh, financially independent, then, man, you could get back in the ministry and the church wouldn't even have to support you. Isn't that a great idea? No, it's not. It's not a good idea. It would be a sinful idea. First of all, God is calling you to the ministry. You must go into the ministry. Though it costs you your family and your friends and your life. If your mom and dad say, oh, I don't think you should go. You go anyways. Secondly, the Bible says it's your responsibility to fill your calling. And it's the church's responsibility to support those who fulfill your calling. Why you fulfill your calling. Thirdly, the Bible says, do not fix your hope in the uncertainty of riches. Fourthly, the Bible says, do not worry yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Fifthly, the Bible says, take pains with the things of God. Labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion, serving God. Finally, the Bible says, seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. And those things will be added unto you. That's what the Bible says. And so, no, it would be a foolish and sinful decision to set aside your calling to pursue the things of the world. In hopes that someday you might strike oil, get rich. And later in life, maybe you could break away from your long term habits of serving self and serving the world and Satan. And maybe you be godly and start serving God. Listen. Many miners during the gold rush died in the mountains and deserts in the hope that they might strike the mother load and they never did. They never found it. And I'm sure what kept them digging in the hot sun and in holes in the ground was the hope that they would get this money. And then one day they'd have a nice house and a nice family and whatever. They sold their soul to dirt. And that's what they got. Listen, God doesn't want you and your riches tomorrow. He wants you and whatever you have today. That's what he wants. There are things that by the will of God might be rightfully yours, but you can't bypass God's means. You know, the other day, Don Trinock and I, we went out to lunch and we 
saw this brand new BMW 745Li limousine sports car. Mm. Mm. I don't know about you, but I like cars and, you know, I would have really liked to see the engine on that car. I like those things. And, you know, the sticker price was still in the window. It was only $76,000. And you know what? You can have one of those cars. If you work hard, if you save hard, if you pay for it with your own money, without neglecting any of the other obligations God has for you, then you can have a car like that. But you can't steal a car like that and be right with God. You can't neglect your family to have a car like that. You can't neglect paying your debts or you can't neglect not giving to the church or serving in the church or doing any other thing God has asked you to do to have a car like that. But sinning to get a sports car like that is not fine. Satan offered Jesus all the kings of the world, which were rightly his in the future anyway. And he, all he said is, listen, do it before God's time and do it with a little Satan worship. Now you can have it. And Satan's going to tempt you in the same way. I know he has already done this. It is to me all the time. For most people, what comes to mind when you mention the word idolatry is bowing down to some totem pole or big chubby statue of Buddha or some Hindu god. You know, idolatry, little icon, little trinket. But the scriptures teach that every sin is an act of idolatry. Everyone. So here we are, a bunch of idolaters. Why is every sin an act of idol worship? This is why. Because... Every time you say yes to sin, you say no to God, don't you? Every time a sin is presented, you are tempted and you think, oh, that looks good. Then as soon as you say yes to that, you say no to God. Of course, you say yes to you. You become your own Lord. And you obey your own will. And what you want and not what God wants, you forget that you have been bought with a price and you are no longer your own. You think you're your own God and you can do whatever you want. Well, you can't if you're a Christian. Now, if you're a pretending Christian, a professing Christian, then sure, you have another owner and it's Satan. But if you are a real Christian, you are owned a slave of God. Turn over to 1 Samuel 15. You remember the story of Saul and how God says, listen, I want you to go attack Agag. I want you to kill him. I want you to wipe out everybody. I don't want you to take anything, anything, any plunder at all. I want you to just come back. Just totally put everything's under the band. Don't take anything. And so what happens? He goes out, he defeats Agag and comes back and Samuel comes cruising up and says, Saul, what is the deal? He's got what? He says, you know, you, you were supposed to destroy. Oh, he says, I did. I obeyed the Lord. And in the background, you hear this. Mm, bah. 
And he says, Saul, you were supposed to wipe out everything and kill the king. Oh, I obeyed the Lord. And you hear the king back there. Mercy, mercy. Moo, bah. <laughs> and the culmination of all this is, is in verse 23. After he tells him that to obey is better than sacrifice because Saul's excuse was, oh, I saved these animals to offer sacrifice verse 23 for rebellion is the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected what the word of the lord he has also rejected you from being king listen when you reject the word of the lord you reject God as your king. You set him aside. And when Saul did that to the Lord, the Lord says, okay, you reject me and my word. And for me being king over your life. Okay. I'm rejecting you as king. That's when he raised up David. Turn over to Colossians three, verse five, Colossians three, verse five. This is not some old Testament thing either. Here, Paul is exhorting the believers to walk like Christians. If they're going to say they're Christians, he wants them to walk like Christians. And so he says this in verse five of Colossians three. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry idolatry he says consider your members as dead that is let appeals to those things have as much effect on your life as appeals to a dead man because to submit to those things is idolatry in ezekiel 14 some of the ezekiel was the prophet who was taken captive and he was in egypt not Egypt. He was in Babylon and he was taken captive and he was there in Babylon. And some of the elders wanted to go talk to him, but the, the elders had fallen into sin there. The Jews had fallen into sin. And so they wanted to inquire of the Lord. So they were going to come to Ezekiel, but God spoke to Ezekiel and he said this in Ezekiel fourteen three: son of man. These men have set up idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces, the stumbling block of their iniquity. The point is this, you don't need a totem pole or a statue or an icon or some little widget or gidget to worship and be an idolater. All you need is to have anything in your heart that's before the Lord. That is rebellion. That is idolatry. And it could be a job. It could be a boyfriend. It could be a girlfriend. It could be a hobby. It could even be the ministry. You know, you're a man and you're on fire for God and you want to do what God wants you to do. I mean, you want to get out there and do it. And God's word says, you know what? You need to love your wife. 
as Christ loved the church, you need to cherish her. You need to nurture her. You need to grant her honor. You need to wash her with the word. You need to live with her in an understanding way. You need to love her as your own body. Well, I'm telling you, if you neglect your wife to do ministry, it's idolatry. Because you are setting aside God's rule over your life. You know, so often we think of things as, well, you know, first I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. No, you have to do it all. You don't get to sin against your wife and do the will of God. You don't get to come in here and sing songs with the rest of the congregation while you're living with sin. That's not worship. That's idolatry. It's hypocrisy. Though the ministry is good and it's commanded, you're never to engage in ministry to the neglect of your wife or your children or any other thing God calls you to do. It's not a pick and choose type of thing. Well, these verses and I like these all. I'll really work on those. These ones are neglect for a while. No, what you're saying is, Lord, listen, I'm willing to submit to you in the areas of my ease and my desires, but I'm not willing to submit to you completely. I'm willing to have you be king in this area, but none of the other areas in those other areas. I'm king. I do my desire. I do my will. Even though you bought me, listen, I'm being a rebellious slave for a while. I'm doing my own thing. And that's why it's idolatry. And how do you escape from this? That's our next point. You fight temptation with the scriptures like we saw last week. What do you do? I mean, you might be asking yourself, well, Jack, what do I do? I mean, I, okay, I fight with the scriptures. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 8. Notice how Jesus answered Satan. Notice the first words out of Jesus' mouth are what? It is written. That's a Greek word, gegraptai. And it's a... In secular Greek, it was used to preface important formal announcements, quotations of important people or whatever. But in the New Testament, it's almost always used to describe a quote of Scripture or to preface a quote of Scripture. And so most of the time, almost exclusively, it means, well, this is what God says. It is written, that is, it is written down in the holy writ and word of God, what? You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Remember that when Jesus was first tempted to turn the stone into a loaf of bread, he quoted Deuteronomy 8.3. Now he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13 and Deuteronomy 10.20. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, part of it says, you shall worship God only. And chapter 10 verse 20 says, you shall serve God only. And this is the critical thing to learn here. You need to know the word of God. Jesus knew from studying the word of God that worshiping God and serving God were inseparably linked. And that's what we see in the Bible, right? Somebody who serves an idol is what? Worshiping that idol. We read in Romans 12, 1, that we are to offer our bodies as living, holy, acceptable sacrifices to God, which is our spiritual what? Service of worship. You may not be tempted to worship a statue of Buddha or a demon or a false god, but I will tell you this. You will be tempted relentlessly from this day forth or continuing to set aside God's word to do things that are acceptable. Maybe work or hobbies or ministries or sleep or things like that. And all of these things are fine in and of themselves when they take first place before God Now they're idols. 
There's nothing wrong with having a hobby as long as you don't set aside reading your Bible and serving in church and attending church and doing all the things God asks you to do in order to enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with relationships unless those relationships cause you to set aside the word of God. God expects you to eat, but if you are enslaved to eating, that's not good. God knows you need to sleep. But if you sleep so much that you become a sluggard, And you're turning like a door in its hinges and you can't support your family or can't fulfill what God has asked you to do. That's your idol. (laughs) Satan, knowing you are believers too wise to think that he can, you know, have you create some golden calf and worship it. That's not how he makes you commit idolatry. And a lot of times when we think of idolatry, we're always thinking of people and, you know, pagans in the jungle worshiping sticks and stones and carvings. No, it happens in our culture big time, big time. All you need to do is say no to God as your king and yes to you as king. And then you're into idolatry. And so we've all been there. And almost always happens in these areas where we have permission and God says we have permission. And but we're not willing to wait on God, you know, We're just a little impatient because we want what could be ours in the future, but we want it when? No. No. Adam was willing to eat the forbidden fruit, plunging himself and all of humanity into the curse because he would not wait on the Lord. Job's wife, distressed at her circumstances, was wanting to see her husband curse God and die in order to relieve her discomfort. Can you imagine that? Listen, I wish you were dead so I could feel better. That's what she said. Abraham and Sarah were willing to engage in polygamy in order to have a child because they were unwilling to wait on the Lord. Well, we've waited 25 years and nothing's happened. Maybe we ought to do our own wicked thing to try to achieve God's end. Tamar did the same thing. She was willing to commit harlotry so she could raise up a, a, a son. Esau was willing to give up his incredible birthright for a bowl of soup because he didn't want to wait for mom to make him something. Jacob was willing to lie and deceive to make sure he got that birthright later on because he was unwilling to wait on the Lord and trust God that he was going to be the one that God said he was going to be the younger ruling the older The people of Israel over and over again worshiped idols and complained and murmured all the way through the wilderness because they would not wait on the Lord. The apostles. This is amazing to me. I mean, I like fishing. Okay. But Jesus died, was buried, rose again, appeared to the apostles two different times. And then they got impatient and said, hey, let's go fishing. What? Jesus just rose from the dead. You're going fishing? Well, you know, we waited three days. He's never coming back. Let's go fishing. I mean, that's what we used to do, and I used to be pretty good at it. So let's go dig up our nets out of the closet and see if we can, you know, get them working again. Gregory the Great said the impatient are to be told that why they neglect to bridle their spirit, they are hurried through many steep places of iniquity, which they seek not after. And that's what happens. 
Don't let impatience get you to the place where you bypass God's timing on God's means. Because that's exactly what's happening here with Jesus. Don't be fooled into having what is acceptable before. God says it's acceptable. Just wait. Listen, you think God's up there going, oh, 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 if I could only get you that BMW. If I could only figure out a way, I, I'm just so short on ability. And you could wake up with it in your living room. He'd have to chop a hole in the wall to get it out if he wanted Don't be fooled into having what is acceptable by unacceptable means. Oh, listen, you're going to be married anyway, so why not act like you're married now? I mean, hey, you know, God did give you (laughs) this gift. Why not use it to do something wicked in order to achieve what you want and what God says is okay to have? You see this in the media all the time. Young women who have talents and have beauty. The movie industry grabs onto them and they sell their soul to have which what is fine in and of itself, but to get it in a wrong way. And so when you're tempted in these areas and you will be as soon as you go out here, you will be. I I laugh. I've been laughing. I. The other day I was, after I preached on Proverbs 7, I'm driving home, you know, and there's this woman walking across the street corner. And now I, all I could think of is now she's in the streets and lurking on every corner. And, uh, <laughs> and she's at Olive in First Street. Um, yeah, that's exactly, exactly what happens. And Satan's going to tempt you in these ways. And there's only one way to deal with this. That you get God's word in your heart. And you remind yourself of what is true. And you remember that God always provides a way of escape. And you look for it and you take it. If you fall on your face, which you will, and get shot down in the heat of battle, you confess your sins, you repent of that sin, you get up, and then you do what is right. And you keep doing that until you die. And then you'll be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful just for what we are able to learn from this temptation again. And Father, I know that all of us can relate to having failed in the areas where Jesus succeeded. But help us to remember what Jesus did. He didn't go to a big class and find some big complicated procedure to try and deal with his sin. And didn't try to go and take some drugs or get an operation or have group therapy. He called to mind your word. He chose in his heart to submit to you. He chose in his heart not to submit to what his flesh or what his lusts might want. And Father, in doing that, he overcame the temptation and was able to be our Savior. And Father, we are so thankful for that. As we leave here today, help us to remember we live in enemy territory. That the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one is working and the whole world lies in its power. And those people out there who don't know you are held captive by Satan to do your will. And oftentimes we get sucked into their deceptions. We don't even know it. So, Father, help us not be ignorant of Satan's schemes and help us to be diligent to apply the resources you have given us so that we can be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. 
Help us to be constantly nourished up in the words of the faith and sound doctrine so we can walk before you in a way that pleases you, no matter what the context. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.